Hi, you are listening to ACR 2018 Podcasts. I'm John Cush, Executive Editor of Room Now. This is a compilation of podcasts from the ACR 2018 meeting in Chicago, wherein you'll hear daily reports from the experts, the KOLs, and people making the news. Hope you enjoy the recording. This is Artie Kavanaugh. I'm at the ACR meeting in Chicago right now, and I'm on Room Now. A lot of good information here and one way that we all get to benefit from this is sharing the information and with that in mind I'd like to invite you to come and join us at RWCS this year coming up in Maui we'd love to have you here get a chance to digest some of the incredible amount of information that we have at meetings like this and other meetings throughout the year and share it with their colleagues and discuss and that way we all get to be better at taking care of our patients so come join us, RWCS 2019. Mahalo. And whatever you're going to talk about. So my name is uh, Atul Devdar. I'm a rheumatologist in Portland, Oregon, Oregon Health and Science University. And I'm here at the ACR meeting in 2018 in Chicago, and this is Room Now. And uh, I saw today um, two abstracts, both presented by fellows and both are related to the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory use and their effect in ankylosing spondylitis patients. And uh, I like them mainly because both are presented by fellows uh, and uh, both actually have uh, a potential of uh, finding newer uh, ideas about what non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. So the first one was by Jean Liu. Jean Liu actually trained with us in Portland uh, now she's a fellow at University of Washington. And she was looking at the hypertension uh, in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And the reason why she was looking at that is because patients with ankylosing spondylitis have increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And the question is, is it related to the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or something else? And she looked at it by uh, taking the, looking at the, um, uh, data from SOAS uh, database. This is a 1,800-1,900 patient database longitudinally followed in North America. Uh, and these are patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And she was looking at the use of non-steroidals low dose versus high dose and the relationship of that with the hypertension. And she found out that patients who have high dose use of non-steroidal with ankylosing spondylitis have a odds ratio of 2.1 compared to those who use low dose of non-steroidal. Um, this was, she's going to take this, this is of course association. So her next project is going to be looking at uh, incident hypertension, whether taking non-steroidals will cause new onset hypertension. The second abstract was presented by Sarah Alehashemi, who is a fellow in the National Institutes of Health and she was looking at the cancer risk in ankylosing spondylitis in the US Medicare beneficiaries, detection of a chronic non-steroidal anti-inflammatory use signature. So the question was non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, do they have any effect on the cancer in patients with ankylosing spondylitis? And to find that out, they used the Medicare database and they found patients above the age of 65, of course, in the Medicare database, 13,000 of them and compared them with about uh, 11 million patients who don't, who don't have ankylosing spondylitis. And they compared, they were age and sex matched um, 
uh, they were matched for agent six, and they figured out that uh, patients on non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug have reduced risk of esophageal, stomach, liver, pancreas, and colon cancer, whereas they had increased risk of thyroid, um, kidneys, and hematological malignancies. Now, we know that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do have reduced risk of gastrointestinal malignancy in general population, but this was also found in ankylosing spondylitis patients. What was surprising was this increased risk of hematological malignancies and also increased risk of thyroid malignancies and melanoma. Um, and that actually, the, the we don't know the causality of this. Uh, she wasn't able to tease out the effect of uh, biologics and non-steroidal and anti-inflammatory drugs in this population. Uh, I thought these both the abstracts uh, taught us new things about the use of non-steroidal in ankylosing spondylitis patients, and both were presented by fellows. Thank you. Hello, this is Jonathan Kay from Chicago at ACR 2018 for Room Now. I just heard the great debate on hydroxychloroquine eye monitoring where Jim Rosenbaum of Oregon Health Sciences University talked about the new American Academy of Ophthalmology guidelines to use doses of hydroxychloroquine less than five milligrams per kilogram with appropriate monitoring. Visual fields and optical computed tomography to look at the retina with regular monitoring and these dosing guidelines, patients should do well uh, on hydroxychloroquine without developing ophthalmologic toxicity for 20 or 25 years. Michelle Petrie from Johns Hopkins University presented the con argument where she agreed that hydroxychloroquine should be monitored, but doses of less than five milligrams per kilogram may be inadequate to control their systemic lupus erythematosus or other diseases. She argued that with appropriate monitoring and appropriate doses of hydroxychloroquine, disease can be controlled and ophthalmologic toxicity ought not to occur with great frequency. There are other toxicities of hydroxychloroquine, but the toxicities of the underlying disease left untreated exceed those potential risks. For more information, go to roomnow.com. I'm Jonathan Kay. See you soon. This is Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I just got out of the great debate between Michelle Petrie and Dr. James Rosenbaum. Incredible session. Um, there were insults flung. There were great scientific data that were being presented. Dr. Rosenbaum says that, you know, rheumatologists were using such high doses of hydroxychloroquine and at what cost? Because the 2016 guidelines from the American Academy of Ophthalmology says that rheumatologists should not prescribe more than five milligrams per kilograms per day because the risk for retinopathy after 10 years of use can be as high as 40%. So at this point, Dr. Michelle Petrie was furrowing her eyebrows, kind of giving him this intense like ugly look. And uh, also, Dr. Rosenbaum was mentioning, you know, hydroxychloroquine may not be all that safe of a drug. There's been several abstracts at this ACR meeting where he mentioned hydroxychloroquine and rheumatoid arthritis may increase the risk of atrial fibrillation, uh, congestive heart failure. So he really cautions us that we should have more data about this medication and its toxicity. Then Dr. Petrie, here she is, sauntering up onto the stage, very confident. 
confident woman, knows what she's talking about. In fact, she says that the H for hydroxychloroquine stands for health insurance, especially in this time and age when health insurance is so expensive. Anyways, so she goes over all the data that's been published. And in her John Hopkins lupus cohort, she mentioned that the risk for retinopathy after 16 to 20 years of use in her patient population is only about 10%. And not only that, the benefits so far outweigh the low risk of retinopathy. And in fact, we're probably underdosing. Um, and the reason why is because patients aren't that compliant. In young patients with lupus, only about maybe um, 60 to 70% of them actually take their medicine. So that means a non-compliance rate of 30%. And in other studies, non-compliance rate can be as high as 50%. And she suggests maybe we should measure blood levels of hydroxychloroquine because that's the only way of knowing whether or not our patients are taking it and if the levels are toxic. She also expounds on the benefits of hydroxychloroquine, including decrease in thrombosis, uh, improved um, survival, decreased cardiovascular mortality, uh, benefits in pregnancy. Uh, so there's just so many uh, great benefits related to hydroxychloroquine. She also mentioned that what, and this is the point that I really love. She says, you know, in the guidelines of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, it says that one of the risks for retinopathy is a combination of tamoxifen plus hydroxychloroquine. But heaven forbids, if we ever tell the ophthalmologist to lower the dose of tamoxifen or to stop tamoxifen, right? And why? Because we're worried about the risk for cancer recurrence. But yet, you know, we say nothing to the opposition, quote, quote, the opposition, particularly when they say lower your dose of hydroxychloroquine because of risk of retinopathy. Well, why would we do that? Because, you know, that's like if we lowered the dose of hydroxychloroquine, the risk for death, thrombosis is high. I mean, cancer recurrence, death, thrombosis, come on. So clearly in my mind, Michelle Petrie had won the debate. Um, the take-home point, actually, is actually very interesting. Uh, she also mentioned that there's a new drug that is an anti-malarial that has the benefits of hydroxychloroquine without the ocular toxicity or the retinotoxicity, and that's desethylhydroxychloroquine. So that's a drug to be looked for. And it, towards the end of the debate, Dr. Rosenbaum tried to, re tried to do his best to rebuke her claims by saying, um, well, can you explain about the cardiovascular risk and, and such in RA? Well, I got to remind you, number one, this debate's on lupus and use of low-dose hydroxychloroquine. Um, and number two is these are abstracts. We need more data. And what's interesting when I was tweeting the debate was that somebody from Denmark tweeted me back with regards to uh, his claims about cardiovascular risk, hydroxychloroquine, and rheumatoid arthritis, saying that actually in their uh, study, they found that the risk, the cardiovascular death risk for RA patient actually is lowered if they're on hydroxychloroquine. So food for thought, um, I still believe hydroxychloroquine is a very important medicine in the management of lupus and I still will use doses that may be a little bit higher than five milligrams per kilograms. This is Catherine Dow reporting. I'm Kelly Crone, uh, room now, and Jack Cush have asked me to talk about what things I've learned about bone. Although I'm a rheumatologist, I do about 95% metabolic bone disease. I work in a very large 
academic orthopedic practice. So the rheumatology meeting has always been a little slim on metabolic bone and osteoporosis. Uh, one of our colleagues, Oscar Gluck, many years ago became a strong advocate to get us more bone content at the ACR meeting. We lost Oscar about 14 years ago, but through his family, his friends, and the ACR, we now have an Oscar Gluck Memorial Lecture every year. So I attended today's Oscar Gluck Memorial Lecture. It was done by uh, uh, Dr. Rosen from Maine. Dr. Rosen is an endocrinology bone expert, a basic scientist, and what he understands better than anybody else I know is the role of fat cells, adipocytes. And, and what I've learned from Dr. Rosen over the days, and, and today I learned even more that fat cells, adipocytes, have the potential to become osteoblasts or mature fat cells. And there are things that can change their trajectory. And there are some drugs that change their trajectory. For instance, pulsatile PTH pushes them to become osteoblasts. On the flip side, they make a lot of rank ligand. So fat cells in the bone marrow are actually significantly impacted when we give the antibody to rank ligand known as denosumab. So what we learned from Dr. Rosen today was fat cells are really important. They're important in the genesis of osteoblast cells and they're probably also very important to the response to our pharmacological treatment for people with osteoporosis. I would urge you to uh, get online and, and, and review Dr. Rosen's lectures, Dr. Clifford Rosen. It was the Oster Gluck Memorial Lecture and I think we can, you can learn a lot. I want to prompt a little bit about tomorrow. Tomorrow there's actually a couple of good sessions and I'm going to cheat and use my phone. Uh, at 2.30 tomorrow afternoon, Ken Sag is talking on complications of osteoporosis therapy. I think this is really important so that we have a better understanding of up-to-date insights into how do we continue or stop treatment, etc. And then at 3.15 in the same session, Susan Ott from Seattle, who is just an expert bone biologist, she's talking about bone issues in complicated patients, which would describe about 80% of patients in a rheumatology office. So yes, there's lots of bone here. We'll do our best as a bone editorial team to post about it and give you daily updates. Thanks very much and enjoy your meeting at the ACR. I'm Nicole and we're here at the ACR National Conference in Chicago in 2018 and I'm here with uh, Dana Dempsey and uh, Alex Hernandez and I'll let, I'll let them and we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, camps for children with um, rheumatic diseases and so I'll let them uh, introduce themselves and uh, tell us a little bit about themselves first. So hi, my name is Alex Hernandez. I am one of the nurses at Texas Scottish Red Hospital and I serve as the nursing director for Camp Joint Adventure. Hi, my name is Dana Dempsey, and I'm the Director of Therapeutic Recreation at Scottish Rite. So we are very excited to come to you to talk to you about camps for kids with rheumatic disease. We are here at the 2018 ACR ARHP uh, meeting uh, where we get to really share ideas with, with uh, physicians, with nurses, with different subspecialties um, that come to, to visit with us, and we are concentrating on um, just sharing the wealth of information that we've collected uh, regarding how to take care of our kids in a very holistic manner. So we definitely want to make sure that they're uh, physically able to, to, to do camp, but we also want to make sure that, they're, that we're meeting their psychosocial needs, um, that they may not be able to have met um, close to home, either because parents are really busy or they just don't have a, an outlet for activity. So 
So tell us a little bit about just what camp is and what you see as the benefits of camp for children with rheumatic illnesses. Sure. Well, at Scottish Rite, we've been running a camp called Camp Joint Adventure for over 25 years. And it services patients of the hospital seen through the rheumatology department. We generally take around 80 children each year to camp for a week at a place called Camp John Mark. Oh, and the benefits, they're endless. They're amazing. amazing. They're very, very um, awesome. We actually have a, a group that we work with that, whose main motto is challenge by choice. So where parents may be a little hypervigilant, the kids can actually go out to these camps and say, I want to try that. And they don't have someone in the background saying, mm, you probably can't do that because of your, your JIA. Or um, maybe we'll try that next time, knowing full well that they probably won't let them do that. So children get to have a chance to run and play, ride horses, do archery, uh, play with a ropes course, swim, just all kinds of arts and crafts. And there are not only physical benefits, but they get to be a part of something larger than themselves. They also get a chance to meet other children and make friends. In fact, that's probably one of the largest things that we hear from the children. And that is, I got to just have fun, or I got to meet other people who were like me, so I didn't feel so strange. So we're To, to share camps that have rheumatic disease and how to go about um, sticking to guidelines, but then make sure that the kids have what they need when it comes to activities and, and um, just coordination. Yes. So you may be out there asking yourself, how do I start a camp? And there are a lot of resources through the American Camp Association or the Camp Nurse Association that provide a wealth of information on their websites, not only about how to start a camp, but then also, if I already have an existing camp, how can I make good even better? So you have the opportunity to polish and be able to address some of the trends, make sure that the programming is right, check into the standards, also that the children have a wonderful experience. Well, that sounds like a wonderful opportunity for kids. And um, I'm here uh, with uh, Room Now. And if you guys have any more questions, you can check us out online. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Olga Petrina, reporting from the annual ACR meeting here in Chicago. I wanted to share findings of the uh, abstract presented by a, a research group from Hong Kong. The uh, abstract number is 212, where the researchers evaluated uh, mortality of patients with inflammatory arthritis over time. Uh, they took uh, three groups of patients, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis patients and evaluated their mortality rates in the last 20 years and also mortality by cause. In this study, they showed that overall mortality decreased significantly in the last 20 years in patients with the bowel conditions and the most significant decrease was in cardiovascular mortality. 
Unfortunately, in all three study groups, mortality from infection increased over time and still remained high. It is unknown if infection-related mortality is linked to the more aggressive treatment with biologic therapies. I guess future study will be needed in this regard, but at least we know that overall mortality trend is improving with uh, new treatments. Thank you for your time, and uh, if you want to learn more, please follow us on Drumnow. Hi, this is Paul Sufka coming to you from ACR 2018 in Chicago. Uh, just earlier this morning, I came out of the year in review presentation. Um, and one of my favorite studies uh, from 2017 was described there, which is the Canto study, where they looked at the use of canakinumab, which is an interleukin-1 blocker, receptor blocker, uh, for the prevention of recurrent cardiovascular disease. These were non-rheumatologic disease patients, so they selected patients that had an elevated uh, C-reactive protein. And the result was that using canakinumab over the course of, I believe, two years, uh, reduced uh, cardiovascular events and all-cause mortality. So this is super exciting because it's a, um, a new target for cardiovascular disease. Um, you know, one thing to stay tuned for uh, will be that there is a trial that should be presented fairly soon, probably from a cardiology uh, conference perspective, where they looked at methotrexate with a very similar patient group. Um, it was actually a trial that was ended early, so we don't know the results of that, but inflammation looking like a really, really big target in rheumatology uh, and in patients with cardiovascular disease. So. Uh, for more information, stay tuned on roomnow.com and we'll see what we find out. Thanks. Okay. Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate and I'm coming to you live from ACR 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. And I just attended an amazing plenary session and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Abstract 836. So we all know that the time to um, from disease onset until diagnosis for AS is about eight to 11 years. And we also know that early intervention helps with disease outcomes for our patients. So this study actually looked at early intervention um, using genetic risk scores, or GRS, um, using genome-wide SNPs. So what I want you to know is there were 700, or pardon me, 7,500 7, patients of European descent with known AS and 6,000 patients who had AS of East Asian descent. And what, the, what they actually looked at, they compared the gene, genetic risk scores, GRS, um, compared to normal um, healthy controls with these patients. And they actually found that the genetic risk scores um, were more sensitive and more specific than HLA-B27, and they were at least as good as MRI results. So, and that was using area under the curve calculations. So it seems that genetic risk scores may actually be useful clinically. And since a microarray for SNPs is actually under $50, it's less expensive than an HLA-B27 as well as an MRI. So hopefully there'll be a few more studies on this determining if genetic risk scores are actually effective for us to use clinically. But at this point, this is promising information. So check us out on At Room Now and um, follow us on Twitter at At Room Now and ACR 2018. So more coming to you soon. Thanks.
Hi, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate coming to you live from day one of ACR 2018 in beautiful yet a little bit chilly Chicago, Illinois. So I want to tell you something that's really, really exciting today that I learned in the Macra and MIPS update. So number one, and this is just a little bit of information, there's a lot more coming, so check us out on atroomnow.com, but because of you and your advocacy, the um, payment adjustments will not apply to Part B um, drug costs in 2019. This was a huge effort on part of the ACR and by individuals as well as a team effort in general. So why that's important is there are a lot of proposed changes from CMS coming down the pipeline and we need to be aware of them. So there are three things that I really want you to focus on for 2019. Number one, make sure that you are MIPS eligible. Go to CMS.gov to make sure that you enter all of your information and make sure you have to actually go through the MIPS process this year. Number two, consider using the RISE registry. If you are an ACR member, you do not have to pay the fee for RISE this year, so make sure you're looking into that. And also, you may get a potential bonus for your patients, so that's huge for us. Another bonus potential is that if you are using a 2015 EHR that meets the 2015 criteria instead of 2014, you may actually get a 10% bonus. So these are just three things that I want you to remember for the macro and MIPS changes coming up in 2019, which affects all of us from solo practice to academics. So if you have any further questions, please see the ACR, especially if you're here. Come by the booth at Room Now. We are at C12 location this, this particular um, <laughs> at ACR in Chicago. And also check out roomnow.com for further live updates. And Check out ACR 18. We'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Sam Whittle from Adelaide, South Australia, and I'm here at ACR 2018 in Chicago. I've been in the poster hall today checking out some of the posters looking at imaging in spondyloarthritis. There were a series of really interesting posters, um, and I want to bring you three take-home messages that I got from these. Most of this work is by Walt Maximowicz and his colleagues and it's looking at uh, specifically at the role of uh, MRI in, uh, in the diagnosis of axial spondyloarthritis. Um, so the first take-home message um, is in regard to the role of active lesions uh, on MRI such as bone marrow edema versus um, structural lesions such as erosions or fatty lesions. Uh, and so what we learned from, from one of the posters is that at diagnosis, um, bone marrow edema or activity lesions tend to be more specific, uh, but the structural lesions tend to be, uh, sorry, the bone marrow edema tends to be more sensitive, but the structural lesions tend to be more specific. The interesting thing is that if you follow these people over time, the diagnostic performance of the activity lesions doesn't really change, but the specificity and the overall diagnostic performance of the structural lesions improves over time, uh, suggesting that as, as patients accrue more damage, the specificity of MRI structural lesions becomes even higher. Uh, this, the second um, take-home message looks at um, local readers of MRIs versus central readers of MRIs. That is, um, 
slightly less experienced radiologist versus radiologist with a particular interest uh, in MRI diagnosis of spondyloarthritis. And not surprisingly, uh, they found that the local readers were uh, slightly more likely than the central readers to overcall the presence of bone marrow edema uh, in early axial spondyloarthritis, suggesting that as we become more experienced in reading uh, MRIs, we become a little bit more discriminating in what we call a, a real uh, or important uh, bone marrow edema lesion. Uh, and the third take-home message is looking at the, um, the performance of plain x-rays versus T1 weighted MRIs to look at structural lesions uh, in axial spondyloarthritis. We've long known that x-rays have pretty poor diagnostic performance but they're still really important to our day-to-day -day, um, diagnosis in the clinic. Uh, this study looked at um, patients who had T1 weighted MRIs and x-rays in, in the same patient and com compared their structural findings. Interestingly enough, there was pretty poor agreement. The kappa was only 0.39 and indeed fewer than half uh, of the x-rays that were reported as meeting the um, modified New York criteria for sacroiliitis actually showed any structural change on the T1 weighted MRI. So I guess what that means is that either the x-rays um, are a much more sensitive modality than MRI, which they're not, uh, or x-rays really are not a very good diagnostic tool. So what do we expect in the future? Well, we expect to see the rise and rise of MRI as a tool, and perhaps we expect to see the demise of plain x-rays. So if you want to learn more about this and everything happening at this meeting, don't forget to go to roomnow.com. All right, so I'm Dr. Bittencourt, and here we are at uh, ACR in Chicago in 2018. And I'm here with Dr. Mark Gorlick, uh, who's associated with the Baylor College of Medicine, the Texas Biomedical Research Institute, and the um, Children's Hospital in San Antonio. And he has some really interesting uh, research that he's going to present later today on uh, uh, Kawasaki's and Inakinra. So thank you for being with us, thank you. Dr. Gorlick. So uh, so tell us a little bit uh, just about the importance of studying Kawasaki's and uh, how you came about uh, looking at uh, the IL-1 uh, sure. receptor inhibitor. Um, so uh, Kawasaki disease is um, a, a disease of childhood. It's a disease where kids get fevers and a couple of other clinical signs and symptoms and then develop heart damage. And specifically the kind of heart damage they can develop is aneurysms in the heart but also scarring in the heart. Um, and it actually is the number one cause of acquired uh, heart disease in children in the developed world. Um, that used to be rheumatic heart disease, but now it's Kawasaki disease. So it is, just for that reason alone, it's important to study. Um, and what we're really trying to do is uh, make this disease more treatable. So currently the treatment um, is via something called IVIG, which is a kind of a infusion of, of antibodies. And this helps to treat about three-quarters of the patients who have heart damage, but another quarter of the patients who have heart damage still have persistent disease. And so there's a couple of um, investigators around the world who are looking at other modalities to treat this disease. And one of the modalities is um, IL-1, which is uh, interleukin-1, which has been found to have um, a, a an important role in inciting the initial inflammation in this disease. 
And so I work in collaboration with um, a gentleman named Moshe Arditi, who is at uh, Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. And he is one of the pioneers in this area, looking at the role of IL-1. And together with him, we were looking specifically, wanted to ask a question. Um, can we treat uh, Kawasaki, the, the mechanical dysfunction of the heart that occurs in Kawasaki with this, this drug, Anakinna, which is an IL-1 blocker? So what happens in Kawasaki disease is not only is there this inflammation and damages the, to the heart, but the heart also doesn't beat as well during the uh, acute part of the disease. And in a small portion of patients, it's potentially possible that later on down the road they may have more damage and more fibrosis due to this. So um, we wanted to look at this, and to start off looking at this, we looked at it in a mouse model of the disease. And so we give the mouse what looks like a kind of a Kawasaki-like disease, um, and um, they develop very, very similar features. And one thing we wanted to do first is just look, do these features of Kawasaki disease, the, the not pumping so well, and another feature that occurs, the swelling of the heart, do these things also occur in the mouse? And they do. Um, and then we wanted to see, what if we treat these mice now with anakinra? Can we stop those features from happening? And we can. Um, and so that really helps to validate the use of this um, and uh, this, this uh, blocking therapy, this IL-1 blocking therapy for Kawasaki disease um, in potentially in humans. Um, and then something else that we saw was also we were able to kind of slow, block a lot of the subsequent fibrosis or scarring that happens. So I think from here, you know, there is already quite a bit of uh, data from Dr. Arditi and some others on the role of IL-1 in Kawasaki disease, but we're helping, I think, to broaden the, um, the idea that this drug is useful, applicable, and maybe one of the, those kind of drugs that we can use to help treat that quarter of patients that is currently beyond treatment. Well, that sounds like very promising um, uh, therapy in the horizon, and uh, we're looking forward to learn more about